first chapter of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, the page number of which, oh, I see, it's 1086. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for you all, remembering you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of God our Father your work of faith, labour of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing your election, brothers loved of God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. You know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit, and you became imitators of us. And of the Lord, when in spite of much persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now to Jonah chapter 3, page 852. Jonah's had a pretty rough couple of days, a serious near-death experience from which God has delivered him, and now he finds himself back on dry land again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message I tell you. So Jonah got up and he went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. And Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. And then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their actions, that they turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he'd threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, um, welcome. It's great to be here with you again. Look, 
I want to begin tonight by introducing you guys to someone. Here she is. Hopefully she's going to come up on the screen. Now, let me tell you a bit about her. Married, no children, aged 42. Left school as a teenager to support her family and her sick grandmother. But 60 years ago, she stepped onto a bus and takes a seat. The bus driver asks her to get up and to give up her seat for a man. What's she do? She refuses. And so she's arrested and imprisoned. But you see, friends, that's just where the story begins. Because that act, as some of you will know, sparked the civil rights movement. And she became the face and the hero of that movement. And when she died, the Reverend Jesse Jackson had this to say about her life. She sat down that we might stand up. Her imprisonment opened the doors for our long journey to freedom. Who am I talking about? Rosa Parks, of course. An ordinary woman who lived out her conviction that all people are created equal. Whatever their colour or their race... It's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? Now, if you're joining us for the first time tonight, uh, we're looking at the story of a man named Jonah. Now, the story of Jonah, it's set a while back, so probably about 750 BC. And the story, as some of you will know, opens with Jonah on the run from God. He's given a mission to go to the city of Nineveh, which is somewhere in modern-day Iran or Iraq, to warn people there of impending disaster. So Jonah runs, and then God pursues him, and then Jonah eventually ends up in the belly of a fish where he spends three days and three nights. And what we saw in the second chapter that we looked at last week, if you were here, was that it's there that Jonah grasps the extent of God's undeserved an unwarranted favor and love for him. And we saw that acceptance is the cornerstone of, of God's grace, right? And here we are in chapter 3. What happens? God gives Jonah a mission, the same one, again, to, to go to the city of, of Nineveh with the same message. You can see that in verse 2. If you've got your Bibles open, he says, Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. What's he do? This time he responds differently, doesn't he? Have a look. Basically, he preaches the shortest sermon in history in verse 4. Have a look at it. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Seven words. It's about as blunt as you can probably get. But the response... It's remarkable, isn't it? It begins with the general population, and then it goes all the way up to the very top. And you can see that in verses 5 and 6. The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth. That's what people did back, back in those days when they mourned. They put sacks on themselves. And, and it happened from the greatest to the least. It's pretty full on. I mean, even the king gets naked. It's right there in verse 6. True story. Have a look. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, 
What did he do? He took off his royal robes and put on sackcloth and sat in the ashes. And he calls every one of his subjects, including the animals of the city, to do the same thing. You can see that in verses 8 and 9. But what, what are we seeing here? It's widespread, spontaneous turning of an entire city to God, isn't it? It's mass, radical repentance. And the chapter comes to a close, not with judgment, right? But with God's compassion and mercy right in focus for us. What's going on here? It's God changing an entire city through one man, isn't it? But it's more than that. Because you see, here's a bit of background about the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh at that time was probably the world's greatest city. It had military, it had economic, it had cultural might. And you can see that from the end of uh, verse 9. It was a city that was also known for its violence. Known for its violence, a big city. Verse 3 tells us that the city required three days to visit. I mean, no one really knows exactly how big Nineveh was or it wasn't. But what we do know was the city was massive, that it was heavily fortified and guarded. Basically, no one in their right mind would ever want to actually try to capture this city. So how is it that one man is able to walk straight through the front door and then to lead an entire city back to God. You know what we're seeing here? There's two things. The first is this. God captures one man and then captures an entire city through him. And the second thing is this. How profoundly indiscriminate God's love is. You see that? What I mean is, he loves those whom we least expect. He loves those who we think are beyond his love. And so tonight, what I hope we'll see is this. God is in the business of convicting ordinary people to change the world with his indiscriminate love. You got that? And so we're going to look at three things tonight. Firstly, we're going to look at the convicted man. That's the first thing. The second one is the unlikely hero. And then thirdly, the indiscriminate God. So friends, let's, let's go to our, our first point tonight, the convicted man. Conviction creates change, doesn't it? That's why it's such a powerful thing. Now, it, it's not entirely clear what's, what's going on here with Jonah in terms of what's happening in his mind at this point in time. I mean, God gives Jonah a command in verse 2 to get up and, and go to Nineveh. And what happens? Just like that. Verse 3, So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. But is this just reluctant obedience? I mean, it's quite possible, right? We definitely get the sense from what we've explored from Jonah so far that maybe he just wasn't too keen at all about this idea. And that's why he was on the run in the first place in chapter 1. And we've also seen what happens in chapter 4, haven't we? 
So if you flick to chapter 4 quickly, in the first two verses, we see that Jonah gets angry about what happens here right in chapter 3. But you see, I think we need to be a little bit, need to be, be a bit nuanced here because you know, humans, us humans, we're a little bit complicated, aren't we? Because what we can't avoid is this. Regardless of how reluctant Jonah is or he isn't at this point in time, the fact that he's prepared to walk alone as a Jewish man into the greatest pagan city in the world, shouting out what he does in verse 4. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like, I guess, like Mick Fanning, right? Taking a trip to South Africa tomorrow to go surfing with the School of Sharks. It's a sort of craziness that takes conviction, right? You see that? One man against an entire population. I mean, the greatest turning points in history all happened through people who were gripped by their convictions. True? Think about it. Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, Abraham Lincoln. Their convictions were driven by a desire to see equality, freedom and justice for all. I mean, have you ever heard of a beauty pageant contestant tell you about their desire for for world peace? Not in person, of course. I mean, on TV. Maybe maybe in person. I've never had uh, had the benefit of it. But you thought it was ridiculous, didn't you? Really, you thought it was ridiculous. But let me ask you this. When was it that we decided that wanting the world to change, was just naive. When did we decide that? Where did we get this cynicism from? When we sort of get caught up in the, the things of life and decided that a better substitute was to pursue more noble, pursue more noble things, like our jobs, rent, mortgages, spouses, kids, retirement. And so what, everything that's wrong about this world just kind of washes over us, doesn't it? Listen to what Dorothy Sayers has to say. She says this. The sin of our times is a sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. So what about us? What about our convictions? Is your life really deeply gripped by something greater than yourself? Has it worked its way into your life, your choices, your thoughts, your actions and desires? The way I see it, Jonah did what he did in chapter 3 because he was convicted by God's faithful love, his grace. And we saw that last week in chapter 2. You might even remember the climax of his prayer. Um, You can flick to it in in verse 8, chapter 2. He says this, Those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. 
They forsake grace. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. Friends, we need to stop and look at our lives. What drives us? Don't just look at the, you know, the glossy exterior that you and I present to ourselves and, and to others. What really drives us in here? I was down in Melbourne a few weeks back to see my sister and I was staying at a friend's place and, you know, I, I'm a pretty sort of inquisitive guy and so as soon as I get there, I'm looking around the apartment, checking out the photos, the books, the art, and uh, I come across this note. It's a quote from a guy called James Baldwin. He's an American novelist. And you know what? The, the quote really struck me. This is what it says. Love takes off the mask we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. Love takes off the mask we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. You see, when we're convicted of God's grace, our masks, they come off. Because it changes us from the inside out. And and it humbles us. And the reality is this, the more important we are to ourselves, the less important we are to anything else. So my question is this, are we convicted by a desire to see God's love and grace impact our families our workplaces, our city, and beyond. I mean, Church by the Bridge's vision here is to see people living for Jesus and loving like Jesus, right? Do we share that vision personally? When we look at the shape of our lives, are we purposefully and intentionally committed to that goal? Do we believe that God has put us here in this place in this time, for a purpose? And are we ready to actually get out of this place and come alongside our community and our city, whether it's the corporate high flyers or the homeless, and to actually connect with them in a meaningful way? Or do you and I just simply love the idea of playing church, maybe once or or twice a week? God changes the world by first convicting us. But friends, I want to move to our next point because I think this is important. You see, when when it comes to changing the world, who does God use? Who does he use? Unlikely heroes. You and me. I love that God is so counterintuitive. Let's have a look at that from the passage. Firstly, look how he empowers Jonah. He doesn't give him the greatest speech in political history. He doesn't provide him with media training. What's he do? He gives him seven words. Verse 4, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. They're pretty unpopular ones, aren't they? But what makes all the difference? They're God's words. And his words do the work. And what we're seeing here is this. God's word is powerful. Secondly, you'd expect them to choose someone with the best track record, right? True? Or someone who's, who's got it all, you know, figured out? But no. I mean, just think about Jonah. 
God gives him a mission in chapter 1, and he runs. He's totally unreliable, right? And as we saw before, he's probably a little bit reluctant as well. I mean, if you were choosing a team, you wouldn't choose him, would you? Here's the thing. God has a habit of doing just that. Choosing unreliable people. I mean, have a think about it. The Apostle Paul, how many, uh, the Apostle Peter, how many times did he deny Jesus? Was it once? Was it twice? No. Three times. And you think, mate, three strikes and you're out. But no, God chose him. What about the Apostle, Apostle Paul? Was he much better? Wasn't he uh, rounding up Christians and putting them in prison? Didn't he watch with approval as innocent men were getting stoned? And yet, God made him the greatest evangelist this world has ever seen. But why? Why does God choose the unlikely hero? Because God's strength is seen most clearly in weakness. Our weaknesses, our failures, our suffering, whatever is broken about us aren't things that we need to hide. They're part of who we are. They're part of our story. They humble us. They break our self-sufficiency. It reminds me of my good friend, M. Uh, In 2007, I met M when I started in the employment practice that I'm now in. And so, uh, as a more senior lawyer, she had a massive and profound impact on my career. And as I got to know Em, we discovered that we both love God and we, we shared openly and honestly about our struggles. Em had a really deep love for her family. And she shared how her fears made it so difficult for her to, be act- to, to actually share God's love with them. It was something that she struggled with for many years. A couple of years uh, ago, we met Em uh, again, this time at her place. She invited us to a new home that she's just moved into. And so we had lunch there and we get to the end of the lunch. And she shares with us the day before doctors had found a 22-centimeter tumor on one of her ovaries. I mean, it was really tough news to hear. And at age 33, she had her life ahead of her. And so in the months that followed, we'd meet up with her and you know, Em would share her hopes and her fears and how she'd continue to experience God's love and grace during that very difficult time. And she'd also share with us that despite her fears, she felt this unavoidable conviction to step out in faith and to share God's love with her mum, her dad, and her brother. You know what? In the midst of her weakness and her suffering, God gave her the conviction to do just that. But more than that, I'll never forget the time I sat down with M for lunch, just with her 
for the very last time in December 2012. And I shared my fears of exploring what it might look like to dedicate myself to sharing God's love with others. And she looked me straight in the eye, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, Justin, you know you need to do this. You know. And it's because of friends like Em that I'm here with you, right here, right now. Because God used Em in all her weakness and reluctance and all of mine to build our convictions. Em passed away nine months later. But her life and her convictions haven't. You see, in God's eyes, it's weakness, suffering, and failure that makes us useful. Maybe some of you guys here tonight have experienced that as well. Maybe you feel weak. Maybe you feel like you've failed, you've suffered. But what we see here tonight is this. God isn't looking for someone who thinks they've got it all figured out or who thinks that they've arrived. He's looking for someone who's ready to go on a journey with him to share his love with others, just like Jonah here in chapter 3. But there's something unusual about God's love here in chapter 3, isn't there? And that brings us to our final point. God's love, it's so indiscriminate, isn't it? Let's explore that. I mean, it's easy to look at chapter 3 and think that this is all about Jonah. But we know that's not the case. Because it's God who's doing all the work right through this chapter, right? And it's in the last verse that we see God's love, his mercy, and his compassion right in focus. Have a look at verse 10. Then God saw the Ninevites' actions, that they turned from their evil ways, and God relented from bringing disaster that he threatened to them. You see, there's a bit of important background that we should have here. Because if you're familiar with, I guess, Jewish history up to this point in time in Jonah's life, you'll know that God had a very unique relationship with the Jewish nation. I mean, they were his chosen people. God had made very specific promises to them to show his love and his mercy and compassion to them, that he would be their God and that they would be his people. And that's why, understandably, Jonah is so shocked and indignant when God calls him to go to the Ninevites. People who were, as their own king admits in in verse 8, known to be evil and violent. A race which was oppressing the Jewish nation. And then to warn them of God's impending judgment? You see, Jonah had made his own value judgment, hadn't he? That God's compassion and God's mercy couldn't possibly extend to those dirty pagan Ninevites. See what he's saying? He's saying, God, how could you possibly love the enemy? But friends, there's an important truth here, isn't there? And it's this. The way God sees it, no one is beyond his love. Absolutely no one. And friends, that's what makes his love so indiscriminate. 
And as we'll see next week, this is the very thing which ultimately frustrates Jonah. And it's, and it's easy for us as well to fall into the same trap, right? I mean, it's easy for us to look at the members of, of ISIS with eyes of judgment. When we hear about people like Brett Cowan, who was convicted of murdering 13-year-old Daniel Morecambe, I mean, do we silently think to ourselves, what a disgusting, pitiful lowlife. Lock him up and throw away the key. Do we see ourselves as better than the average criminal? Or do we recognize that we look worse to God than that criminal looks to us? I can tell you, friends, that's not how God sees them. I mean, yes, God is he's angry at injustice. He's angry at violence and evil. Very angry. But his deepest desire is to see people turn back to him, to trust in his mercy and his forgiveness, and his love. He looks at the rest of people that we've completely written off, and what's he see? He sees infinite possibility and opportunity for his redemption. So what about us? What do we see? What do we think of those people who don't share the same values as us? Who don't see things the, the way that we do? Or maybe there's just people in our lives who we find difficult and challenging. We've all got them, right? Let's be honest. What do we do? Do we silently judge them in here and in here? I mean, we've got our own subtle ways of doing things, haven't we? Ever tried passive aggression? It's a great technique, isn't it? I'm sure we've all tried that before. We avoid them. We talk about them behind their back. We mock them. Or will we remember that God loved us when we had no love for him? When we, like the Ninevites, were his enemy. When we were under God's impending judgment... And then he relented and he saved us. Not because of what we deserved, but because of what he desired. And will we then see them through the lens of God's indiscriminate love, compassion and mercy? The same lens that God sees us through. But you see, Jonah's story points us to someone else who changed the world with God's indiscriminate love, doesn't it? Let me tell you you a bit about him. He was born into obscurity in some backwater town. He didn't come from a a family of of means, didn't have a private school or uni education. At least from the outside, there was nothing impressive about him. And yet, being who he was, he was convicted by one mission— to honor God by displaying his indiscriminate love to the world. Like Jonah, he called people to turn back to God. He drew crowds of thousands. He displayed the power of God's message, didn't he? Which was matched by his exemplary life. But there were people who hated him. 
Why? Because he challenged the self-righteousness and he challenged their judgmentalism. And so what they did was is they put him up on the cross, left him hanging there, they mocked him for everyone else to see. You know how old he was when he died? Younger than me. Younger than me. On that cross, they saw defeat. But what they didn't realize was that through that suffering, Jesus stepped onto the cross willingly. And when he did it, he took the punishment that we deserved for saying no to God and yes to our own self-righteousness and judgmentalism. And it was there that he showed the full extent of God's indiscriminate love for you and for me. It was the greatest act of love and victory over death that this world has ever seen. An act of love which started a movement that changed the world forever. And he continues to change the world today, doesn't he? Billions of people around the world, whatever their past, their race, their culture, they all follow him and love him as their leader. You know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus, the ultimate world changer, the embodiment of God's indiscriminate love. Friends, let me end tonight with a story a little bit closer to home. It's about my mum. She's here tonight. Mum grew up in Hong Kong in a non-Christian family. She had no exposure to the person of Jesus. My grandmother got sick when my mum was, was very young. And so as a five, six-year-old, mum was responsible for looking out for everyone else in the family, her brothers and her sister. She was trained as a nurse, came over here to Sydney during the 70s. She ended up becoming part of Dr. Victor Chang's nursing team, performing life-changing heart surgeries. During that time, my grandma's health worsened. And she passed away unexpectedly when my mum was in her 20s. But mum being mum with her strength of character and perseverance just pushed through all of that. She was capable, she was confident about her abilities. And so it was really hard for my mum when I became a Christian in second year uni. She found it really challenging seeing the change that had happened in me to see that God had started to change my priorities and my purpose. And so, understandably, she was really frustrated with my, I guess, obsession with the whole God thing. Now, fast forward to 2010. I'm sitting in my office, typing away, and I receive a call from mum. She says that she's hoping to find some time to sit down and to chat with me, and she said, just you and me. No one else. And I was kind of curious about what this conversation might be. And so I asked, and then she explained to me that the other day, for whatever reason, she pulled out a Bible that a friend had given her 30 years ago. And she was hoping that we would sit down together and spend some time reading it with each other. And so that's what we did a few days later on the Saturday morning in our living room. And then in July last year, she received Jesus' forgiveness 
and started her new life with God, age 59. It's pretty crazy, right? One evening in August, a month later, in 2010, at a church just up the road from here in North Sydney, St. Thomas's, at a baptism service, she gets to share a story of how God had convicted her of his deep love for her in front of hundreds of people. She was 35 years older than the next youngest person. Friends, that's just the start of mum's journey. She's never been trained or attended a course in how to tell someone about God's love. She'll probably never preach a sermon or lead a Bible study. But let me tell you this. I know of no one more passionate and driven in their desire for God's love to share it with everyone and anyone. She looks at the people that God has placed around her and she sees the infinite possibility of God's love and work in their lives. My mom's sharing God's love with my 90-year-old grandfather and in the months to come, he comes to know Jesus. She starts praying for my sister in Melbourne who I shared with about last week. She comes to know Jesus. Since coming to know Jesus, mum's been continually sharing about God's love in word and action at work, to her extended family, lunches, dinners. Not in a creepy or preachy or, or, or pushy way, no. But just in her own way. And it doesn't matter who it is that God has placed in her lives. She's doing it as a world changer in her own way, living out the convictions that he's placed on her heart. Friends, be convicted of God's love for you. Know that he's working through all your weaknesses and all your failures. Look to your ultimate hero, Jesus. Then go. Set your hearts on changing the world with God's indiscriminate love. Friends, shall we pray? Let's do it. Lord God, Father, we want to thank you so much that even though we are people who are reluctant and unreliable, you've convicted us with your amazing love and your grace. And so, Lord God, we pray that you will send us, empower us, convict us to share your love in action and in word. Help us see yourself, see ourselves as sources of your amazing grace. And Lord God, we pray that more and more people will come to know you and love you and experience your love. And Lord God, we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.